and you shall eat there before the Lord and rejoice. This is the command in this law we have from Deuteronomy, a tithe law that um, commands the people, directs the people to gather before him. And this reading, as I think you'll see, is a perfect kind of window into the season of Lent that sits in front of us. Ash Wednesday is three days away. We'll be back here, all of us and more, at 6 p.m. to begin our journey to Lent, 40 days of journeying through a season, through the death of Jesus to his resurrection on Easter Day. 40 days, uh, not counting the Sundays, that are feast days. And so this Sunday and the days ahead are a preparation for what we are about to undertake. So Deuteronomy, I'll lay this out, this scene for us, what this looked like in the ancient world, and then um, we'll come to take away some points for how to be prepared. This tithe, as you uh, might have picked up, is um, a setting aside by the Israelites of their produce, their crop, their wine, their oil, that they make each year. They set aside 10% of it, which is pretty significant, and they put that away for an annual feast. And then every three years for another feast where they gather in their towns. These feasts in the ancient world are extremely common. We know about them. They were um, either called by a royal king, um, almost always by a king, for the proceeds to build up the palace, or for the temple, the priests to build up um, um, temple sanctuary life. So Israel has written this law, and this goes, this goes back uh, four or 5,000 years. So this is an ancient, ancient practice, this kind of tithe that Israel has. Uh, the second thing they do is they gather. The people come uh, to this common place. Deuteronomy says to the place, the Lord your God chooses to place his name. And then they feast. So this, uh, what Israel does here, is not uncommon. They're um, very similar to other ancient nations. But there are um, several differences here that signify Israel's theology, what it did for their faith that will help us think about the season of Lent. First of all, this tithe does not go to the king. There is no king mentioned in the passage. The priests are not the benefactors of this tithe. The temple, the palace, does not benefit from this tithe. The people, as one scholar says, eat their tax. The second thing they do is they gather at a place, only here it's not the temple and it's not the palace, it's the place where God chooses to place his name. It has no connections to human power. And in this place, if you might imagine what is meant to happen here, the placing of God's name is signifying this way as you can imagine in our readings when Israel got the law from God, it was in 40 days of Moses meeting with God on the mountain in the fire and cloud and smoke and the quaking of the earth, our reading from Psalm 99. The Israelites sat around this mountain and looked at the fire and the smoke and the loud voice and they feared greatly. And this feast is going to send their Israelites to a place where that same fiery, smoky, earthquaking, cosmic shattering God will meet with them. The feast is a place to have fellowship with the nearness of God, to see his face, to tithe, to gather, to be at the place of the Lord, and to feast. 
In the ancient world, um, if you could imagine 10% of all of your work going into a single meal, you would think that was extravagant. Unbelievable amount of food. And this happened. We have pretty good record of it. This enormous feast. But in the ancient world, to get invited to the feast, you needed to have a significant connection to the king or to the priest. And I expect you can see the significance of the way that the Israelite law spells out who is invited to eat this tax. You shall not neglect the priest, the Levite, and you shall gather with the stranger, with the widow, and with the orphan. This would have been a radical law in the ancient world. The elite don't eat this meal. Everyone does. This remarkable gathering of all people The Levite, they had gardens, but they didn't have land, so they couldn't contribute to the feast. And so the Israelites are to be mindful all year to set aside food for those who labor in their midst and can't contribute on their own. And they're to remember the widow and the orphan and the stranger. It can be common, this is very significant, I think, in the law, for people to think that that provision is um, a welfare provision for the poor. And most likely it is not. Deuteronomy 15 and 16 and 24 are festival meals and laws, Deuteronomy has dozens of them, that provide for the poor. It names the poor. It names the needy. This law does not name these people. A Levite, a widow, uh, these landless immigrants could be rich. The focus of this law is the gathering of all. Leon Cass, uh, University of Chicago, has written on these meals more and more in recent years. Here's how he describes these Jewish practices. Hospitality recognizes simultaneously the neediness and vulnerability and also the humanity of the stranger. The stranger knows that we know, that we both know, what it means to be estranged and necessitous. To feed the stranger is to make him feel less his absence from his own. There is an extraordinary implication of this meal that there is great feasting to be had, great rejoicing, and that no one is left out. It is the first point I think about as we enter into this Lenten season and our journey that I'll set before us is that God desires for us to have our eyes open for the stranger so that when we feast at Easter, all are welcome. A couple of weeks ago, Amy did this with the children and asked them how to identify the stranger in their midst, and they were remarkably good at doing it. Who do you know who comes to church who might be left out? Who do you know at work or in your neighborhood, who might be left out. This festival meal calls for them to be a part of rejoicing and being filled. So I suggest that all this is a good window for us into our season of Lent that's before us. And I sent an email, a part of this prayer that we pray every week during Lent. So in a moment, David will pray the Eucharistic prayer in a few moments. And in that prayer, there's a part where he and I will say... It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give you thanks. And then we pray a prayer called the proper preface. And this prayer changes with each season. And the preface that we'll begin reading next Sunday every week is this. You bid your faithful people cleanse their hearts 
and prepare with joy for the Paschal Feast. How Deuteronomic, isn't it? Much like Deuteronomy. That fervent in prayer and in works of mercy and renewed by your word and sacraments, they may come to the fullness of your grace which you have prepared for those who love you. A tithing and a setting aside of simplicity in view of a feast where all gather in the fiery presence of the Lord. This is what we are preparing to do in our Lenten season ahead of us. And we mark these times and we set ourselves to the tasks that are necessary so that when we come, it is a feast. Let me give us three brief ways or thoughts about how we might exercise this Lent. What will you do starting Ash Wednesday? It is traditional to give something up, to take on practices. So I'll give us some guidance about what that might look like. And the first thing that we ought to take away is that this is not a self-help exercise. Many of us need to wake earlier, eat less sugar, drink less alcohol, or watch less television, or exercise more. And you can do all those things for Lent. Be wonderful. But this is not a New Year's resolution. It's not how to get more disciplined where I have lacked it. Spend less time on social media and Netflix. Those would be great things. But if you could imagine why Deuteronomy sets this up so well, is that the setting aside is not for sheer mastery of the self. It is so that we might enjoy a feast. And so the practices that we engage in, even if they are self-help practices, ought to do what Paul is asking us to do, which is to carve out the deep vacuum of space for the Lord Christ to enter in. So that is the first point, is that this is not a self-help exercise. The second point is, it is an opening up, a filling out of a space, a hollowing out of a space for the Lord to enter. Paul says, doesn't he, for I count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings, that so in some way, this is Paul stretching his imagination, I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul recognizes the great transformation of the Jewish feast from a meal at a chosen place with the Lord to a feast that we eat into our resurrected life. So what will we do for Lent? What thing will you give up? What habits will you have so that you know that weakness that Paul talks about, that suffering, the counting of loss of all things and rubbish, good things of the world that we can partake in well and morally and legally, that we set aside so that we daily have space to welcome in the fullness of the Lord. That is what we seek, is not any longer the fiery presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai, or even Jesus on Mount Tabor, transfigured before the people. But Paul recognizes that what begins to happen in this festival meal of Easter is that the risen Christ takes up life and bears fruit within us. Gregory of Nancy Anson was, uh, in a book I read this, David gave me for my birthday, he talks about this work of Christ, this transformation from the fire and the mountain with Moses to what Christ brings us in the resurrection life. He says, From that day 
my eyes have been blinded by the light of the Trinity, whose brightness surpasses all that the mind can conceive. For from a throne high exalted, the Trinity pours upon all the ineffable radiance common to the three. Here's a poem. Here we enter into Lent and make a giant space so that Christ and the Trinity may pour ineffable light and grace. Third thing that we keep in mind then is that what happens in Lent, the goal of this season is to be transfigured into the image of the risen Christ. We have that scene in John 17 today in Luke and in Matthew also. Jesus is turned all white. His clothes are transformed. His face gleams and shines. And the word there used that the Matthew uses for Jesus is that he was transfigured. It's a rare word at this time in Greek and it's only used again of this scene and in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul describes Moses on the mountain seeing the fiery face of the Lord and receiving the law walking back down the mountain having to veil his face because it was too bright for the Israelites to see. And Christ, or Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians that in this season, in what we feast on in the resurrection and our union with Christ, we will behold with unveiled face and be transformed into the resurrection life of the Lord. It is appropriate to say that the season of Lent we are making space to be transfigured, to be all white and shining as the sun, to be as Christ was before the disciples on the mountain who fell on their faces. It's a grand feast. I think that's why the Old Testament festival is such a perfect setup. To set aside so much food for a meal that was so extravagant and so global and international and so welcoming and where the fiery presence of the Lord was beyond any description of color and light. Friends, I call us into a season of a holy Lent. Set aside things, simplify your life, and make space that we may see the face of Christ and be transformed into his likeness.